All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. To our second show, I'm your host Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is the inimitable Glenn Thomas. Uh, though Glenn, you're really you're really a co-host here. I guess it just sounds better in our in our intro to say yeah. it that way. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing terrific. How about yourself? I'm doing all right too. You know, I have a question for you. Right. Do you still get called commissioner every once in a while? No, never. Uh, no, well, the, occasionally there's a a staffer who's been at the public utility commission yeah. to that are still there that that still refer. Uh, see them. And, and there's there's at least two people in Harrisburg that still call me chairman. So that's kind of cool. So <laughs> I wasn't sure. Ask that. I wasn't sure if that was going to be too much or not, but yeah, yeah. yeah. that's funny. It's like there's some coaches I've had in sports before, you know, right. that I still call coach every time I see You got them. it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, I still call my high school basketball coach coach. Yeah, you know? it just feels yeah, familiar. Yeah, right. you know? The guy who was leading you, you want right. to continue that relationship. That's yeah, great. Our audience probably won't be listening to this on Veterans Day, but it is Veterans Day uh, when we're recording here, so we want to uh, extend our thanks to all veterans for your service? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just, just as electricity is a critical part of everybody's life, so is freedom, you know, and we have the that's, veterans in the world to thank for that's that. Great, so, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we appreciate their service. And, and also would note that many veterans are employed in the power industry. Many utilities across the country have taken on terrific initiatives to help transition, you know, th- those who are in the military serving our country that way to transitioning to utility service where they can provide a community service just from a different means. So, uh, you know, terrific programs and, uh, again, great opportunities for great people. That's a really good point, actually, and it reminds me that PJM often talks about how the folks in their, in their uh, dispatch, they're often, yeah. they look for former military because of their ability to make split-second decisions and to operate well under pressure. So that's, that's a really good point. Going forward, though, we're going to go back to our usual schedule of recording on PJM's no meeting days because uh, those are days when we don't have anything else going on in the energy sector. So, hey, we might as well come and Chat. discuss it with each other about this. Um, yeah, that's always been our, our plan, right, Glenn? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. But today being Veterans Day, we thought we'd take advantage of the opportunity of having no PJM meetings today. So, But look forward to a more regular broadcasting of the, the podcast. Yeah, sure. Check uh, PJM's no meeting schedules, and you can pretty much... I bet that we'll have an episode coming out pretty soon thereafter. All right, so on today's episode, we're going to talk about the dynamics between FERC's federal authority and actions being taken on the state level. PJM is regulated under FERC, but it obviously still has to pay attention to the interests of states within its footprint. Collectively, uh, the state consumer advocates keep track of activities at PJM through an organization called the Consumer Advocates of the PJM States, or CAPS. And uh, utility regulators do that through the organization of PJM states, which we know as OPSI. Glenn, you were at OPSI's annual meeting a couple of weeks ago. How did it go? Yeah, no, uh, and the the OPSI annual meeting is always a terrific um, opportunity to 
to engage um, PJM stakeholders, uh, you know, particularly the states, the state commissions, their staffs, you know, on the important issues uh, impacting the RTO. That was October 28th and October 29th in Baltimore. Congratulations to Greg Carmine and all the APSI staff, Kathy Burr, and all the state commissioners were putting on a terrific conference led by uh, Commissioner Mike Richard in Maryland. But it was an interesting conversation there, mostly because it became very, very apparent that states are heading in different directions from a policy level. Um, you have different priorities being set by state legislators um, throughout the PJM footprint. I thought Commissioner uh, Ethan Krimble from um, from Illinois said it very well. He said, you know, I'm going to do whatever the uh, Illinois General Assembly tells me to do. I mean, and that's what commissioners do. They follow the law. Uh, that's what they're due to the law. They're, they're doing. And when the laws are going in very different directions within a single RTO, it's a very challenging time. Um, you know, when I was, you know, there in the early 2000s, actually when we were developing the documents to create OPSI, states were largely headed in the same direction. They all wanted to look to their RTO to provide reliable generation resource adequacy at the lowest cost possible. Now, states are very much, they, they still want that, but they want more. Um, and it depends on which state you're in, what you want. Maybe the legislature said we want offshore wind. Maybe they've said we want storage. Maybe they said they want to preserve a 65-year-old coal plant located in another state. These are all things that are happening in the PJM footprint uh, based on policies that are set at the state level. Yeah, that coal plant example there, Glenn, I'm, I'm assuming that's just a theoretical one. That no. You, you <laughs> that's a real one. And we'll talk about that later. We will. We will. Yeah. yeah it seems to me this is always seem like one of those situations where you, when you give your audience what they want and you do a really good job, they turn around and say, okay, that's great, and now that you're doing so well, I'd like you to do more for me. Is PJM, do you feel that they are, are they, are they caught in a no-win situation here? I don't think they're caught in a no-win situation, but they're, they're certainly caught in a very challenging situation because their mandate has been reliability at the least cost possible, and they've done that really well. Our reliability is as strong as ever, and our prices are as low as ever. I mean, you know, PJM has checked that box, uh, checked both those boxes, and in theory, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, this should be the golden age, right? The best of times. Yeah. However, maybe achieving that reliability at the lowest cost has meant certain plants had to retire. Certain plants that were not economic couldn't be built because, you know, the economics on either side just didn't justify them. So, you know, states have looked to, in essence, pick winners and losers, yeah. right? They've, they've looked to select certain resources and say, you know, we feel so strongly about this that we're going to provide a revenue stream for that that is beyond the market. And the challenge of that, as we talked about again on the last episode, is that out-of-market revenue stream undercuts the investment theories of all yeah. the people that are investing without a subsidy. So, yeah, on, on a local level, a lot of these plants that are staying open, I mean, they're important for local co economies, right? And we have, there are people in these communities that need these jobs that are, would be very concerned if these plants close. But on a much larger level, on a regional level, there are decisions that have to be made. Yeah, and I mean, there was, you know, a terrific system in place to preserve local jobs in the energy space. It was called regulation. And, you know, 
um, plants employ a lot of folks at the local level, and uh, that certainly is a system that works. It's just more expensive, you know, and consumers pay the costs associated with that. And there's a reason why prices are so low right now. It's because of competition. It's not because we preserve plants that were otherwise uneconomic. And yes, I mean, it it is very challenging for certain communities. I have tremendous sympathy for or empathy for communities that have gone through closures. I mean, you know, in some of these towns in Pennsylvania, the power plant was and is the major employer, particularly up in the coal regions. Even if you look at Middletown, Pennsylvania, you see these communities, they've hosted these power plants. In my mind, that's, there's a burden associated with that. They're dealing with coal trucks or, you know, emissions or sirens or fallout shelter drills in the case of nuclear plants. There, there, there is a burden that those communities bear. And then all of a sudden the plant closes. And yes, I mean, I think the state should do everything they can to help those communities transition. But, you know, transitioning communities is nothing new. Certainly in Pennsylvania and exactly. most of the middle. I mean, you know, that's what has happened for better or worse over the last several decades in this area. So, um, yeah, I mean, the local impact is significant, but you have to balance that out with the benefits on the other side. And that is, you know, what sort of economic activity has been generated by lower electricity costs? And quite frankly, a lot has. <laughs> we have seen tremendous growth and tremendous opportunities because our power prices are at historic yeah. lows. That's, that's really hard, though, for local communities to appreciate. Wouldn't sure. you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because they, they often see a lot of their hard work, particularly in these communities that build up around a plant. Yeah. They see their hard work going to create development elsewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, that is that is something that, that has to be thought. Was this all expressed during OPSI? What, what went on during the meeting? Then? Yeah. Uh, no, not so much. I mean, you know, I, I, these legislative debates that are occurring at the local level, you know, all have their unique flavors and textures and and nuance. OPSI was more about, you know, a recognition when you see all these different states heading in all these different directions, how do you sort of create a coherent market policy around it? It's tough. It's really tough. I know we're going to get into FERC a little bit later, but it's very challenging and it's it's something that needs to be rationalized. Or, or maybe we just commit ourselves to paying more. You know, maybe maybe the least cost part is just not something we're prepared to do anymore. But again, there's there's costs associated with that. And, you know, I think I think a lot, unfortunately, a lot of policy, particularly in the energy space, is being made without regard to cost these days. I think there's some unrealistic expectations being created out there that are not going to be delivered on. Um, we're already seeing some states see some of that pain, so to speak. I mean, California's taken some some pretty interesting actions. New York's going to have issues pretty soon. Even Illinois is recognizing that they're not going to be meeting the renewable energy target. So that has not slowed down the legislative debates in any way, though, which is really kind of an interesting dynamic. You know, I look at you know some of the commitments that are being made in some of these states, like New Jersey and Maryland, and just scratch my head wondering if they're ever going to happen, knowing, you know, just looking at New England and, you know, seeing how the offshore wind industry has really struggled to actually create megawatts up there. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, in terms of the flavor of the conversation at OPSI, it was more, I think, a recognition, at least from my standpoint, is we need to think about ways to rationalize a single market around states with priorities that are just going all over the place, quite frankly. A lot of folks say, you know, let, let's just price carbon. And, you know, that'll 
I'll take care of the states. That's not, that's not it at all, right? Carbon did not drive the discussion in, in Ohio. Carbon is not driving the discussion in New Jersey, despite what some folks say. Um, <laughs> we'll you know, carbon that. did not drive the discussion in Pennsylvania. You know, carbon is part of the discussion, but it would be naive to think that we just price carbon and, and these issues go away. That's not the case. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of other factors that are going on there. It, I, I know you mentioned uh, the commissioner from Illinois on this topic. Are you hearing other legis- or other regulators say, here's what my legislature is bringing to me? Or are they kind of taking a step back and trying to figure out how this all fits together? You know, it's interesting. And I've seen this play out in multiple states in the PJM, even though the commissions are the ones that are in charge of ultimately implementing this stuff um, that comes out of the legislature, they in general have taken a hands-off approach to the legislative debates. Like you don't see the chairman of the Board of Public Utilities in New Jersey or the Maryland Commission or the Pennsylvania Commission going before the General Assembly and saying, hey, this is a really bad idea. Yeah. Uh, you don't you don't see that. I think they're very deferential and they, because this is the way it's set up. The General Assemblies and the governor make policies. They, they also assign who those commissioners are. They also assign and, so and they, confirm. It's and a yeah. little bit of the... the right. But so they're, they're very sensitive about respecting and, and commissions are supposed to be independent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're supposed to be independent from you know the governor's uh, office as well as uh, the, the, the General Assembly. Yet when all these things happen it usually falls upon the commission to straighten it all out. And, and you can see some of that frustrating, like for example say in New Jersey where the BPU was not involved in the legislative discussions to any large degree. The law got passed and basically put in front of them a proceeding to determine if if, uh, the nuclear plants were making profits or not. And you could see the frustration at the commissioner's level with the process that they were, the position that they were put in. One commissioner said he felt like he was being held hostage. There was talk about, you know, ransom and things like that. Pretty strong language associated with the fact that there was a law that was passed that put the BPU in really, in some respects, an untenable position, one where they didn't have the tools they needed to to make that decision, and then their standard of review was just amazingly vague that just put them in a really tough spot. So that's that's the consequences of, of the commissions not getting involved. It, it always rolls downhill, doesn't it? Always, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the rubber always has tended to hit the road at the commissions. That's why commissions are there. They're there to make the tough decisions. I mean, that's the commission job is a tough job. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, but it's it's made a lot tougher when laws are passed that, that don't give them the tools for them to do their job. So the uh, GT Power Group usually hosts a nice little event during uh, each of these meetings. Was it a good one this time? How did you guys... Yeah, well, the Steelers won that night, so uh, they beat the Dolphins. So that, that, if nothing else, that's always a good reason you know, to get together. I have to say, I as I was listening to, or as we were putting together the last week's podcast... I was surprised. I did not realize that you were a Steelers fan. I am. Yes, I am. Wow. Yes. Wow. That's, uh, you know, we're in suburban Philadelphia. That might be cause for concern for some folks. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in the central part of the state in the 70s, uh, and I had Sunday morning, I had a choice. Or actually, it was Sunday afternoon. We got the Steelers games and the Eagles games, and I just gravitated towards the Steelers in the 70s. It wasn't a hard, uh, it wasn't a hard thing to do. Otherwise, I'm a Phillies fan, Flyers fan, and Sixers fan, but for football... 
All yeah, right. I love All the right. Steelers. And, you got your uh, Philly cred back. That's yeah, okay. Yeah. I watched the Flyers game last night, so they beat <laughs> Boston in a shootout. That was terrific. So I was glad to see that. Well, so, of course, OPSI and CAPS aren't the exclusive voices uh, for states. State legislatures certainly never shy away from making their own statements. Glenn, you've really been keyed into what the state houses are doing and specific uh, state actions. Let's do a little bit of a rundown sure. on you know, news from the states and, and how that's impacting PJM and FERC. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Let, let's maybe start on the uh, eastern seaboard of PJM and work our way west. But um, I think the big takeaway from you'll see from these conversations very quickly is every state to a certain degree is fiddling right now. Um, and, and, you know, with policies that impact PJM and the wholesale markets. And you look at New Jersey. Um, New Jersey is committed to a lot of offshore wind, I think 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind. And in New Jersey, if you add up the numbers, and this is under current law and a current executive order in New Jersey, they're committed to 40% of their megawatts being delivered with a ZEC or a zero emission credit associated with it. You know, those plants, those, those credits are exclusively coming from the Hope Creek and Salem nuclear power stations in southern New Jersey. So 40% of the megawatts have a ZEC associated with them. 50% have a REC or a renewable energy credit associated with them. They're going to subsidize 3,500 megawatts of offshore wind and 2,000 megawatts of storage. That's a lot of (laughs) subsidies um, that could get very expensive. And you've already seen the commissioners in New Jersey uh, really raise concerns uh, associated with uh, costs. Commissioner Shivakula has been particularly vocal on, uh, on that in New Jersey. But um, you know, New Jersey's reviewing their energy master plan right now. The anti-fossil rhetoric is very, very strong in New Jersey. Governor Murphy have, had an epiphany a couple months ago and now opposes a, the construction of a new natural gas plant in the Meadowlands. They're, they're taking a strong stance against any fossil infrastructure. And you can definitely see that aspect of the progressive agenda in New Jersey. You know, when I look at all the states in PJM, New Jersey is probably the farthest left of all the states. And you're seeing that reflected in energy policy. We'll contrast New Jersey to some of the more conservative parts of the footprint, but New Jersey kind of stands out there as one where the progressive agenda is going to be the most vocal. Mm-hmm. Well, they've been a particularly loud state, it's certainly in the PJM process uh, in recent years. It's only been a couple of months or a couple of years since the uh, commissioners threatened potentially leaving PJM right. if, they, if, they, if things didn't shape up. And that it had an impact. You can't argue that they haven't seen a response to their comments. So if it's working, why try something else? They've been loud about that. And and I would also point out, you know, on the topic of offshore wind, that basically created a stakeholder process at PJM where staff were working very hard to create a process for just getting offshore wind facilities connected to the onshore grid, and as someone that that sits in these meetings on on a fairly regular basis, they were trying to move that forward really fast, and it it was repeatedly mentioned that we're doing this at the behest of one state that is trying very hard to move forward with with offshore generation, and uh, they they sort of split split the process into two separate buckets. The first bucket was talking about just radial lines, single lines that went from onshore to offshore just to get connections. There was a lot of discussion in these meetings about, well, what about networks and what about creating 
um, transmission zones out there, and staff were incredibly focused on just getting something in place so that they could get these uh, wind facilities interconnected. So the noise that New Jersey Commission has been making has been having an impact at PJM. You have to, yeah. you have to give them credit for that. Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, and that's, that's probably a good transition. I mean, you know, I've been particularly cr- critical of the offshore wind in general just because I think it's really expensive, and it's just a technology whose time is not ripe yet for this area. And just to put this in perspective a little, um, and these are Maryland numbers, uh, so maybe we'll tr- transition to Maryland here a little bit, but, you know, in Maryland, they approved two offshore wind projects, a total of 366 megawatts, and the cost of those 366 megawatts is two point. $1 billion. That's what they call the OREC price. So that's what the people of Maryland are going to be paying for 366 megawatts, which is about half of a new power plant. And they're going to be paying that out to 2043. People in Maryland are locked into paying some pretty expensive prices for what they're getting. And you contrast the 366 megawatts to 725 megawatts of a brand new natural gas plant in Maryland, the, Saint, the CPV St. Charles Energy Center. That costs $775 million. So you're getting twice the megawatts at the St. Charles facility for 775 versus 2.1 billion and oh by the way the St. Charles Energy Center is not supported by an out-of-market subsidy so that's entirely at-risk capital that's being deployed there so Maryland offshore wind 2.1 billion consumers of Maryland are locked into paying that 725 million dollars for twice the power and that's going to be up to CPV to determine whether that money gets returned or not. So, you know, when you when you look at numbers like that and then that's even before you calculate in the transmission costs um, which we all understand and appreciate are going to be very very significant. And you know, there's going to be further discussions related to view sheds and other things. I mean, there's a huge push to make these things further off the coast. It actually was reported last week that the developers in Maryland now want to make even bigger turbines. You know, yep. they want larger facilities that are more efficient, so it's good from the energy side of things and maybe can help with these cost numbers, but that's going to further outrage the folks in Ocean City, Maryland. I was going to say Ocean City. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which means they'll want to push them further out, which means more expensive transmission and, yep. and everything yep. else like that. So, I think there's a lot of political energy in both Maryland and New Jersey going into offshore wind. I mean, Maryland's going to another solicitation. I mean, I just mentioned, you know, 366 megawatts. They want to make that 2,000. Maryland, in a lot of specs, has, you know, quadrupled down on this really expensive pathway forward. Certainly Maryland's choice to do that, right? You know, Maryland is absolutely entitled to force bad deals under their, you know, consumers. Um, you know, I, I don't deny they have the right, but at some point, I think somebody recognizes, and that's that. this is not unusual in the energy industry. I mean, we go back to the 1970s, you know, when purple contracts mm-hmm. were bad deals that were getting signed. I mean, there's a history of policymakers trying to out-guess the market, and they usually, almost 100% of the time, end in failure. I mean, they usually end up with consumers paying more than they otherwise should. And that's, that's an unfortunate lesson in history that this industry, I shouldn't say this industry, that, that, that policymakers just don't... Yeah. Respect. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely a running theme, not only to this episode, but just in general, about the difference between sort of large-scale and regional interests and initiatives and the local impacts that those have. And, and we often see how a plan that might otherwise 
seem very beneficial on a, on a large regional scale, when you bring it down to the local community and with the impacts that it's going to have for them, Ocean City is, is the example that we're talking about here. You know, they might otherwise be very environmentally motivated. Here they have concerns about this for the view shed and we're going to see the turbines on the horizon. You know, what impact is that going to have on tourism? What impact is that going to have on traffic in our community? And it creates a lot of local impacts that are just really hard for regulators on a regional or a larger scale level to predict and address in the time scale that, that local people are looking for. Yeah, yeah, and there's trade-offs. I mean, Maryland had an example a couple months ago where, you know, they rejected, I believe it was a solar um, farm development because they were concerned about runoff into the bay yep. because they were going to be cutting down a lot of trees to put this facility in place. And the, sure. the environmental objections were significant enough that the Maryland um, – Maryland rejected that 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 project. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's all about trade-offs. I was going to say, I'm usually very supportive of renewable and environmental projects, but one of my pet peeves with them is they often become these green field projects in, in that they are using pristine land and they're causing environmental impacts with their construction as opposed to, you know, brownfield projects that we hear about. Right. There's, there's some advances in putting solar into landfills and places that we've already done a lot of construction and that any new construction is a marginal impact compared to what's already there. But we often hear these stories about, oh, you know, there's this pristine pasture land or there's some, some wooded area that a renewable company wants to come in and clear cut in this yeah. particular situation and put in their own new plant. That's not to say that other types of generation don't do the same, but it's a situation where if a little more forethought, a little more consideration could make a good project even better or a marginal project beneficial. Right, yeah, and this is another thing that's not really understood about these offshore wind discussions. I mean, in Maryland, the land footprint for that 360 megawatts I described earlier is 36,950 acres. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's bigger than Washington DC. Hmm. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of land. Contrast that with the, you know, power plant that was twice the capacity at a, a fraction of the cost, which took up 76 acres. But I mean, think about that, nearly 37,000 acres for 360 megawatts and you're going to move that to 2,000. So Multiply that 36,000 or 37,000 acres by six. That's a massive land footprint. To your point, you know, um, and how how are people going to feel about that? And that's just Maryland. Maryland's committed to 2,000. New Jersey wants to do 3,500. You know, Virginia, I forget where Virginia's number is, but they have several thousand that they're eyeing as well. So... I'm just not sure where you're going to put all this stuff. I'm yeah, not sure absolutely. anybody's ever thought about this. Yeah, I just saw a report the other day on uh, the dirty wind effect as well. I don't know if you've no. ever looked into this. But it's the idea that when um, <laughs> turbines are, are put in, they obviously they slow down the wind as it's coming towards them. It's just a process of physics. Right. But then they also create turbulence for the wind as it passes by them. And so the wind now becomes less efficient and less useful for further turbines down the line. So it's this dirty wind effect. Years ago, it was theoretically thought of and possible, but there was no real evidence. And now they've found some evidence with the the fields that have been put in that is showing that, yeah, the the turbines further back along the line are less efficient um, because this wind... So as we build more of these and we continue to disrupt wind patterns with this, you know, is there a large scale 
impact that we aren't paying attention to yet that we're that that might be coming down the pike that we haven't really addressed I, I'm I don't know that anyone's sure about that but it's another one of those things where a solution to a current problem might create another problem that we need to come up with a new solution in the future for. I'll tell you what I mean and you know this is coming from somebody who spends a lot of time in state capitals listening to these debates and you know what you and I are talking about here is just not being discussed. It's, you know, we're going to create so many thousand jobs, you know, we're going to be carbon free, we're going to be renewable. It's those talking points that are carrying the day. And sort of the reality check, if you will, talking points, whether it's reliability, price, just flat out ability to have enough land to do this stuff. We'll figure that out down the line. Why do you think that is? Do you think there's just not the level, not the, the time and level of discussion to have that much of a nuanced conversation or what why is that not being discussed it's a good question it's a good question and i think the answer is you know those other talking points are so strong they're intrinsic they're they're right fundamental right i mean if if i'm an elected official i can go back home to my constituents and say hey listen i did this you know i did jobs and environment jobs and environment important issues right now right 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 and they carry the day yeah so Okay, so uh, New Jersey, we've talked about Maryland. We've started on the eastern seaboard here, and we are pushing west. Okay, where should we go? Pennsylvania? Uh, sure, sure. Okay, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, Pennsylvania is an interesting state right now. We obviously had a pretty pretty robust discussion about nuclear subsidies in the spring in Harrisburg. Pennsylvania ultimately decided not to go that direction. How close did it get? Do you have any? I don't think it was very close. No, okay. No, right. I mean, they couldn't even get it out of one committee. I didn't I mean, think so. And, and even like the prime sponsor was quoted as saying it wasn't even close in committee. Um, and, 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 and in theory, at least in the Senate, it was in a pretty favorable committee and it didn't even come up for a vote. If you had given an odds before that, do you think that it would have gotten farther? No. No. no okay. No, so no. it was kind of DOA. I wouldn't call it DOA, um, but, I mean, those supporting the nuclear subsidies had an uphill battle. They had a lot of headwinds that they had to, to overcome. And, and the pressure driving it was, of course, Three Mile Island, right. uh, which produced its last megawatt in September. So with Three Mile Island closing, I think once there, there became an acceptance, if you will, that Three Mile Island was not going to survive, it really basically ended the legislative discussions yeah. related to this. But that said, I think they're going to continue on. You know, the governor announced about a month ago that he was looking to get Pennsylvania in Reggie, the regional greenhouse gas initiative. Pennsylvania is currently not in Reggie. Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware are. Virginia is toying with it. That's a pretty big perspective swing for Pennsylvania, correct? Has there really been discussion in the past about? There has been, yeah. Um, And, you know, I mean, Reggie was even there when I was a commissioner. I mean, I was in some of the early discussions about Reggie. And Reggie, you know, was just never a a clean fit for Pennsylvania, largely because Pennsylvania is just a big energy producer. I mean, yeah. we, you know, there's a lot of power that's being produced in the state. Pennsylvania's carbon numbers have actually come down more than any other state besides Ohio. I mean, Pennsylvania has reduced carbon close to 40% from 2000 levels. It's really been remarkable. And that's almost entirely fueled by coal plants shutting down and gas plants taking their right. place. Um, gas plants are so much more efficient. They produce significantly less carbon yep. than, than the old coal plants. And yeah, that, you know, like I said, we've, gas is cheap. And gas cheap, it's plentiful. You know, there's there's some terrific facilities. I mean, some of the most technologically advanced plant power plants in the in the universe are being made here in Pennsylvania right now. Yeah. It's really phenomenal to see the investment that's going on. So, um, you know, so at least politically, and then the other thing politically too in Pennsylvania is you have 
a a house that's led by western pennsylvanians and a senate that's you know led by northern central and western pennsylvanians so folks who are from gas and coal territory it's going to be a hard discussion to move forward on i think it's a good conversation for pennsylvania to have it i think it's terrific that you know we're having these hearings that people are better understanding what carbon is about because that was the other thing i realized you know just i was up testifying maybe two weeks ago on this and you know just struck me how very thoughtful legislators didn't really understand what carbon was you know you know they were concerned about the air that children were breathing and asthma rates well that's not carbon that's not the issue right 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 yeah and particulates that's a whole other right right and it's not about carbon blowing in from our neighboring states that's not the problem Having that education, I think, is, is, is very beneficial. And, and we'll see where, where it ends up. I think the Reggie conversation, the carbon conversation, is a better conversation to be having than the, the ZEC conversation because Reggie is a market-based mechanism. Yeah. I mean, it is a market signal. Ultimately, it's better to address environmental issues through the market, mm-hmm. not through tired analogy. But we didn't solve the acid rain problem by giving hydro plants an out-of-market subsidy. Yeah. No, we regulated sulfur, you know, and the plants that were associated with it. And acid rain is a thing of the past now because we addressed the pollutant. Um, and that's what we need to do with carbon. And yeah. I don't know where the Pennsylvania discussion ends up. I think it's going to take a while. And the other thing I don't know in Pennsylvania is just how hard the governor's willing to push his case. I mean, is this one that he really goes to battle with the General Assembly on? Next year's an election year, 2020. Well, the governor's up. He's not running again. But, um, you know, there's going to be a presidential race. Right. Pennsylvania could will likely be a key state in yeah. that presidential you debate. So, so, yeah, so all this sort of feeds into the narrative of Pennsylvania. It should be a fun fall. So yeah, We had talked earlier in the last episode about sort of the overlays at PJM, and I know there's some concern about can you have a separate market within a market? Can you have the Reggie market interact successfully with PJM? And, and as you know, Glenn, there is a stakeholder discussion group going on right now that is solving or attempting to address that problem on how do we tailor PJM's markets to be able to accommodate state decisions on carbon pricing or even yeah. just other types of markets, this whole idea of leakage. So there, there is a lot of work being done right now to try to make PJM flexible enough to incorporate any decisions that states want to do on these topics. I, I think... It, to sort of boil that down a little bit, it, it assuages some of the fear that efforts like this might be changing the, the, the foundation at PJM, particularly yeah. creating concerns for PJM. PJM sees it coming, and and it, it seems like there's a good opportunity for them to be able to address it and have everything kind of work harmoniously eventually. Eventually, yeah. And I mean, this is, again, part of the challenge when you have states that are pursuing different strategies. Pennsylvania, politically, is in a much different state than New Jersey and Maryland, no doubt about it, in mm-hmm. Illinois, you know, in Ohio, you know, in West Virginia. PJM is trying to rationalize that a little bit in this was it the carbon show was carbon it carbon pricing senior, senior task force task force yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and like i said the election in 2020 could change everything yeah. right i mean if, if a democrat is elected I don't know who that Democrat is. Um, I don't think the Democrats know who that Democrat is <laughs> right now. But one of the things I'm fairly confident in saying is, if a Democrat's elected president of the United States. That Democrat is going to do something on carbon. President Obama was there, ready to go with the clean power plan. Right. Uh, he's going to take it to court. He was going to battle whether he had the authority to do it, but they were going to do it. Yeah. And the next Democrat, if there is a Democrat elected, 
We'll be building on that foundation. We'll do something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. it is. So if we're, we're back here at two years from now, it could be an entirely different conversation because the feds just have already laid it all already. out. Yeah. Well, and I think that was part of the initiative for this process that PJM is going through right. because they didn't want to be put back in the situation of having a square peg trying to be rammed into a round hole right. in, where their markets couldn't accept either some level of, of uh, federal mandate or whatever, whatever states were doing. You know, they, they wanted to create some level. I think that's, that's one of the things with this, this carbon pricing task force is there's this assumption that it's about bringing carbon pricing to PJM, and that, that's not it. It's, it's more about, I think, creating the flexibility to be, to be able to accommodate what individual states want to do so that they can allow this flexibility for different states to do yeah. different things and not ruin the whole circus tent that we have going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. bring the whole thing down. <laughs> it is a circus tent right now. That's a good analogy. So maybe we should go wet Ohio. Should Keep we talk about Ohio? West. Keep okay. going. Yeah. Go west. Speaking of circuses, uh, <laughs> Ohio was unbelievable. I mean, at some, at some point, they're, they're going to make movies about like the I last was, you six You've had a months. lot going on. I can't wait to hear what you yeah. what your report is for. Well, I mean, there was a, it was a, you know, interesting legislative process. I mean, in, in House Bill 6, just so folks are clear, you know, the general, um, you know, House Bill 6, which was passed by the General Assembly and signed by the governor, um, the thrust of the bill, without going into details on the 200-page bill, was to provide subsidies for Ohio's nuclear power plants, to provide subsidies for a 65-year-old coal plant that's located in both Ohio and Indiana, and to basically gut the renewable and energy efficiency mandates. So that, at a very high level, is what happened in House Bill 6. It was a kind of a topsy-turvy legislative process. There was a lot of opposition. Um, there was a lot of support. I mean, there were a lot of, uh, you know, union uh, folks came in and testified. Obviously, you know, the owners of those plants were very supportive. The environmental groups were largely opposed. I, on behalf of the PJM Power Providers Group, was opposed and offered testimony at least three or four times out there. But what kind of got crazy in Ohio is the bill passed, got signed into law, and then Ohio actually has a referendum process where if a sufficient number of vote signatures are collected, you can get the question put on the ballot about whether the law should be maintained. And that process started uh, on House Bill 6, and it became crazy. I mean, it just, there was very active efforts. They had to get 260,000 signatures, which is a pretty formidable signature level to collect. But early indications were that there were sufficient number of Ohioans out there. But those opposing the referendum, mostly First Energy and the owners of those facilities, spent a ton of money creating ads, linking you know, the supporters of the House Bill 6 to Chinese efforts to infiltrate the grid. And then they hired thousands of folks to hit the streets and try to block and prevent people from signing petitions. It was a a pretty surreal set of circumstances. Folks were getting arrested. The matter is currently before the uh, state Supreme Court in Ohio. But I think the bottom line takeaway is House Bill 6 is going to probably get implemented in Ohio. And that means Ohio's nuclear plants, Harry and davis Bessey, two first energy plants that had not cleared prior capacity auctions in PJM, will receive an out-of-market subsidy. And those plants, which are otherwise economic, will now become economic because of the support they're receiving from the state of Ohio. Likewise, for the OVEC, the Ohio Valley Electric Cooperative, 
like again, 65-year-old coal plants located in um, both Ohio and Indiana, uh, they will receive a subsidy as well. So again, plants that are otherwise uneconomic will receive a subsidy and become economic, competing against those plants that do not receive a subsidy. So it wasn't about carbon in Ohio. It was about jobs. It was about preserving facilities. And it was about creating a political coalition that was able to get the bill passed. And that's what it took and that's what happened. Yeah, and I mean, it clearly wasn't about environmental issues in Ohio because they gutted the RPS standards yeah. out there. So um, I was just going to say, it, it seemed it seemed like a good example of what you were talking about earlier of these bills that are going through where the drivers are, are much different from what might have what you might have thought the the original point was yeah they certainly weren't saying you know we want i, I mean we want reliability at least cost they certainly weren't saying that and in the other thing too i mean we and we see this in time and time again in states i mean there's just you know competing economic analysis of you know whether this you know what they're going to do is going to raise rates or lower rates everybody makes wild assumptions about the future price of natural gas and everything else like that and you can pretty much find a consultant out there that's willing to support your cause if you give them the right assumptions. My certainly experience is those states that tend to go outside the market usually almost always end up paying more. This almost seems like a situation where Ohio on some levels regrets the consequences of being in PJM. To your point earlier about economics and whether or not a plant should continue to operate or should be retired based on economics, that's the whole point of PJM. And here we are, a state sort of saying, oh, wait, hold on, that was about to work too well, so now we're going to go back to, if we go back to our hamburger example from, right. from last month, this, this is a hamburger that's been around for a long time. Um, it's a lower quality hamburger, but we don't want it to close because we like this shop. Um, so let's let's throw some money. Are we seeing as, is the yeah, state... And that's a very, you know, old school, vertically integrated system way of thinking that is not the deal what that Ohio's i was doing now you're saying right right, right 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 yeah yes this plan is 65 years old yes it's more expensive than what's in the market but you know what we love it so much we're going to pay more to keep it around mm-hmm. okay we're personally going to pay more right because right. the rest of the market doesn't doesn't well, yeah, the rest of the market's affected too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. So it's because Ohio signed up for a very different deal in 2000, right? You know, I mean, Ohio basically said, shoot, Pennsylvania's going competitive markets, Illinois is going competitive markets, we got to go to competitive markets or we're going to lose out on economic development opportunities and yeah. what have you. You know, your rates are probably going up, Ohio. I do not believe the economists that are coming out there saying customers are going to get a better deal by subsidizing old, uneconomic plants that would otherwise retire. I know when OVEC was, they, joined PJM maybe 18 months ago and they put in their petition to join and there was a lot of discussion among the stakeholders about why would we be interested in having this group here. They're bringing in old plants that are likely to retire. They're bringing in old transmission infrastructure that's likely to need to be replaced that we're all going to pay for and they're not bringing any load. They aren't bringing any customers to help pay for that. So what's our benefit here? Why why would we want to do this? And, And PJM's answer generally seem to be, well, we don't have a choice. They've jumped through all the correct hoops and we have to allow them in. And it kind of went away pretty quietly. I was a little surprised at how little after that that brief sort of 
back and forth, it kind of quieted down, and, and now they're a member, and um, you know all the benefits that that come from being part of the RTO are afforded to them as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Ohio, uh, Illinois. you want to go, keep going west or go south to Virginia? You want to hit on Virginia real fast? Yeah, well, yeah, okay, let's do Virginia real fast. Yeah, Virginia uh, is going to be, I think, a very interesting state to watch. I mean, Virginia is still a vertically integrated state for the most part. I mean, there is a little bit of competition for the larger customers, but for the most part, it's a vertically integrated state. Dominion's the largest utility down there, but they had a pretty good political shakeup last week with the Democrats taking over both the House and the Senate for the first time, I think, in history in Virginia. You have Governor uh, Northam in Virginia, somebody who's been pretty vocal on the energy front, has been pretty aggressive about tackling carbon, wants to get Virginia in Reggie, and now it appears he has the political support in the chambers to accomplish that. So I would encourage everybody to dust off Executive Order 43 in Virginia. I think you're going to see pretty significant movement out of Virginia towards uh, some of these more progressive ideas. Virginia is vertically integrated. We probably do a whole separate podcast on how that impacts the market. Sure. But again, I think politically, and a lot of folks, a lot of folks that got elected in Virginia ran on a very anti-Dominion platform. Yeah. So um, stay tuned. Man. Yeah, I think it's yeah. going to be very interesting to say. All right. So. Let's Illinois. keep the theme of politics and, and what's going on in the state capitol. Moving up to Illinois, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, Illinois is going to be, I mean, all, all the states are going to be, I think, fascinating this spring. I think it's going to be a very active spring at the, the state legislative front. But Illinois, probably more so than ever. I mean, again, in Illinois, you have Governor Pritzker, pretty progressive governor, self-made, billionaire. He seems to be very, very popular in the state. They're getting a lot of stuff done. They've sent a lot of bills. They've advanced a lot of legislative activity. He has two chambers that he can work well with. And energy seems to be the one box he has not had a chance to check yet. They're in veto session right now. That's going to conclude this week. So um, by November 15th, the legislative session is basically over. If there's going to be energy-related activity in Illinois, it's going to be in the spring. Clouding over all this is a pretty significant federal investigation into members of the General Assembly. There's been a a lot of things that are being reported that I think are of interest. Several, uh, at least one assemblyman was charged with bribery a couple weeks ago. There's a state senator who has since been identified who had been wearing a wire for three years. I think there's going to be more charges to drop. You've seen some shakeups at Exelon slash ComEd with the abrupt retirement of Ann Promajori, who was president of all of Exelon Utilities, and before that was president of ComEd, which is the local utility in Chicago. So there's certainly a big cloud over Illinois right now. And in fact, Governor Pritzker had some pretty poignant statements to uh, Exelon CEO Chris Crane, who, as part of his October 31st earnings call, said that if Exelon didn't receive out-of-market subsidies for four Illinois plants, he was going to close them. And the governor basically retorted back, you're not going to play hardball with me. Mm. Uh, that was the message that the, the governor sent back. So Finally. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's clear push in Illinois to do more on clean energy. There's a clear push to move to 100%. Again, Illinois is a state politically that is not quite where New Jersey is on the spectrum, but it's it's probably close. And, uh, I mean, I think you'll see a big push for renewable, big push for carbon-free, big push for energy efficiency with an overriding desire to keep the lights on. So, again, Illinois is going to be another really fascinating state this spring. Well, we haven't touched on all of the PJM states here, but we've touched on the majority, and I, I think we can take away the theme being that it's all over the map. Yeah. Right? I, I mentioned Circus 10 earlier, and that was just sort of a off-the-cuff comment, but it might have been pretty apt. Ultimately... 
I guess this is all left to Ferk to straighten out. Ferk's the ringmaster. Yeah, right? you yeah, know, I mean, point. you know, um, you know, the tent is PJM, and the states are the different animals. I mean, Ferk is the ringmaster, mm-hmm. trying to make sure everything moves where it's supposed to move. And Ferk has a mandate. I mean, just like those state commissioners have to follow their state laws, the federal commissioners, the Ferk commissioners have an obligation to um, support and defend the Constitution, which means implementing the Federal Power Act, which requires them to have just and reasonable wholesale market rates for the rate markets they regulate. And it's been determined uh, by FERC that the rates are currently not just and reasonable because of the impact that these state out-of-market actions are having on the federal government. So, I mean, they've, they've made that determination. If they decide to stick with that determination, they're going to have to find a solution to it. So it's something that we'll probably be, I'm sure, talking about on future podcasts. But FERC has a job to do here. And it's probably one of the bigger calls FERC has made in the last 25 years, how they're going to address this. It's been talked about a lot. We've talked about it a lot. It is the big issue. And at FERC... You know, right now you have three commissioners. You have Chairman Chatterjee, Chatterjee. Commissioner McNamee, McNamee, and Commissioner Glick. Right. And it's pretty clear that Commissioner Glick and Commissioner McNamee have different views sure. on issues like this. You may have a Commissioner Danley pretty soon. James Danley, nominated FERC by President Trump. Uh, had his confirmation hearing last week. I thought he did a very admirable job answering the uh, committee's questions. It was, it was pretty uneventful, right? Pretty that's uneventful. I would describe it as... And as a nominee, that's what you want. Sure, right. sure. You want a uneventful hearing. When you're going and, into a political right. show like that, there's going to be people throwing up obstacles and, and hurdles for you to jump through. And, and I think he did a pretty... Like, again, un, uneventful is, is probably the, the right. best compliment you can give someone in a situation like that. You don't mm-hmm. want to be creating news there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the only real news was, and it was not the, the fault of the nominee, a few Democrats were upset that his nomination as a Republican wasn't paired with a Democrat to replace uh, Commissioner LaFleur, who left the commission earlier this year. Yeah. I mean, that was the only controversy surrounding him. I've heard speculation that he could get in before the end of the year. Again, you know, locked. I think it's pretty locked, right? I mean, there's, there's no... <sighs> Nothing's locked okay. in DC. Well, uh, what would be your? Would I don't think it's any. I don't think it's anything personal to him. I don't think anybody had any personal objections. Right. Or at least they didn't voice any. Yeah. To him, I think the question is whether the Democrats choose to make a stand about the fact he's not paired with he's another. He's not paired with the right. Exactly. And then it gets into the whole Senate cloture process, which I'm not sure I totally understand. Would be another long delay. <laughs> right, right. Which, which you would think that maybe they want to avoid that with the amount of delay that there's already been here. So. Yeah, well, I mean, we could. I mean, Commissioner Glick's recusal expires on November 27th. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, will we be able to reestablish That's a quorum on many PJM issues, you know, before the end of this month? That's a good point. Um, you know, but, you know. Commissioner Glick has has asked for some time to review the files he's not working on, so I think we'll start to see some. It won't be immediate. It's not like we're going to see a wave of orders on November 28th. There's going to be a little bit of time after that. So the idea that we could see some orders on December 23rd and December 24th is is very real. Yeah. Well, so we have we have Danley getting approved, and we already have. the other three commissioners that will be... Can you sort of handicap each of the commissioners? Where do you see them coming down on some of these issues? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Glick is the one who's kind of put his views out there more so than he anybody. You know, he dissented from the, the finding that the current rules were unjust and unreasonable. His view is pretty much states should be able to pick and choose the resources that they would like to provide revenue streams for. The, the federal markets are residual markets. It'll work itself out. That's a huge simplification of his 
position, but he's the one that's kind of been out there publicly. McNamee, Chatterjee have been a little bit more guarded with mm-hmm. their positions, obviously Danley as well. If you think about the commission at the time, you had Kevin McIntyre there. Right. You know, um, Powelson, obviously those two are gone. Yeah, well, LaFleur was there. And LaFleur was there. Right, she so. dissented with yeah. Flick. So yeah, it's a very different dynamic at the commissioner level. So unless the majority, meaning Chatterjee and McNamee, are willing to move to where Commissioner Glick is, which I don't believe they were willing to do, they're going to have to forge a consensus on their own, which I think they'll do. I think they understand the urgency and I think they understand the problems that are being created because these capacity auctions have been delayed and what have you. So I think I think they will step up to the plate and call balls and strikes. As on we've discussed, but that's going to kick off a whole nother process, right? Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. that's just the beginning in a lot of respects. Well, I was going to say, you know, as we've discussed this a little bit before, you mentioned previously that Danley and McNamee are kind of rule of law guys, right? right? right. So they're likely to go directly with what's prescribed, what, what their job is and, right. and what the what the law says, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, McNamee is very much, I mean, he's said this, he's facts, law, decision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very linear path for him. My impression of Danley is she's from a similar ilk. Yeah. I think those two will work work very well together. And, you know, a chairman, it's, it's a little bit different being a chairman than a commissioner. And, you know, the chairman has to sort of marshal the votes to get stuff out the door. You can be a lot less dogmatic as a chairman than you can as a commissioner. I think that's why you haven't seen that or heard that much from Chairman Chatterjee on this because he's... He knows he has to keep his powder, and, and you haven't heard from the others either. I'm not saying, I mean, it's, it's a pending matter. It's not like they're talking ex yeah. parte, but Chairman Chatterjee will be appropriately guarded as he's trying to manage where he can get a majority. Yeah, it's much harder to predict what he might do because he's got a lot of other qualitative yeah. factors that he has to have. One thing I'll be willing to bet is that he's not going to be dissenting on this. Mm, he's going to be in the majority. He knows he's going to be in the majority, and it's just a question of how he can marshal... The the prop bet. I, would, I would take that prop bet with you. Guys. What's that? I would take that prop bet. To, oh. Yeah. Uh, where, where, will, where will the commissioners come down? Will they be dissenting or... Uh, uh, I could probably, yeah. I, I think, I yeah. I think, I, I mean, if it stays three, I think it would be a McNamee Chatterjee majority and, yep. a, and a click dissent. Yep, yep. And that's not really stepping out that far no, no, <laughs> to predict I, that. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we're coming near the end here. Let's wrap up with, what are you looking... Sure. Forward to in November. What are you thinking about? What are you looking for? Yeah, no, it's going to be a, a, a fun end of the year here. Uh, I mean, obviously, we talked a lot about the FERC decisions, FERC, yeah. and I think we'll see you know some some pretty significant FERC decisions in December. I'm also looking forward to uh, PJM naming a new CEO. Yeah, I mean, I that's think we'll point. see. Uh, I almost forgot about that. Jeez, that's been yeah, that's yeah. been going on quietly for a while now. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I would certainly wouldn't be surprised if we see announcements sometime in the next month on yep. that, and obviously. You know, as we talked about in the last episode, really important hire, really important... uh, For signaling as much as for direction. Right, right. So, I mean, we could certainly, you know, look forward to that. We're not going to just fade away here in 2019. I think we're going to have a lot of things to talk about moving forward. There's a couple of things going on in the stakeholder process as well that that could wrap up and and that could be of interest. There's there's, uh, there's always something going on. Always something. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I said, once these FERC orders come out, I mean, FERC's been an relatively speaking, quiet for the last couple months. But once we start seeing some of these orders come out, that's going to kick off a whole... It's a domino effect. It really will. Because everything in PJM has kind of been in stasis, with with a few exceptions, uh, until we until we figure out what's going yeah. on with all these different markets that continue yeah. to be up in the air. And once there's something solid 
for everyone to, to work off of. I, things are going to have to move very, very fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So, so we, we still have reserve pricing pending, which is a big yep. filing. I mean, we could see that by the end of the year, too. I yep. think that'd be terrific if we got an order yeah, on that. Literally every market at PJM has some Something, level that's of... Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's nothing that's going on. Well, it's you spent another hour <laughs> with us here, uh, and I think we're pretty close to an hour, so we're not giving you too much mm-hmm. back this time. We picked a sign-off last time. I'm going to stay with it, Glenn. Be excellent to each other. All right. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.